Acts chapter 12 is where we should be. Hey, by the way, on the uh, Eagles family night, I do hope you will consider joining us for it. Um, it's going to be a great family environment, of course, be some enjoyable basketball, uh, get to watch the Eagles play. And uh, then at halftime, we're going to do some things that are not only fun, but also uh, valuable. So I hope there will be guests that will be joining us that evening. In fact, I know there are some guests already that are coming to the evening. And I know that there will be some people there that don't know Christ. So we're going to have a gospel opportunity tomorrow evening. And that will be at halftime. We're also going to point people to the good question video that uh, many of you pass out on the little cards I think it's going to be a great opportunity. If you have friends, neighbors, coworkers that don't know Christ, it would be a great evening to invite them to come join you for a basketball game. And again, no cost to get into the game. And um, it's just going to be a wonderful, a wholesome family environment. So if you're available, come join us tomorrow evening for the Eagles basketball game and for what I hope will be a really special evening. Acts chapter 12, we're, we're going to walk through a passage of Scripture or some passages that really help a narrative unfold before us. And we oftentimes use the expression, in fact, even this last weekend in church, we, we reference the expression that God is always and only good. And then we said he's always up to something good. I think many times we, we do give acknowledgement to that, but we don't oftentimes make the connection to God doing something good um, in and even through the failures that you and I experience, like our own personal failures. We know God's up to something good in other people's lives, and we see it, but sometimes we wonder through the failures of ourselves or through others, failures that sometimes we're, we're up close, we're watching those things happen. Sometimes we wonder, is God really, through these circumstances, still up to something good? There was a song that I was thinking of when I was preparing this message, and it's an old song, but it captures the idea. Do you remember the, the song that started something beautiful, something good, all my confusion he understood, all I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful out of my life. If you and I had to depend on a perfect history for something beautiful to happen, I suspect that most of us would be in a lot of trouble. But isn't it remarkable how God so often makes something really beautiful out of the mess that we strive to make out of our lives? And there's a situation that unfolds in the passage that, that we're going to kind of jump around to, to make the narrative tie together. But isn't it interesting how God is always up to something good? even in the challenging circumstances that we present and, and um, offer many times to the Lord. Okay, your Bibles are open right now, Acts chapter 25. Title of our message tonight is simply this, Profitable Again. Profitable Again. Acts chapter 12. Let's look at the uh, interpersonal dilemma that was unnecessary, but not uncommon. This was not necessary. This didn't have to happen, but it was not 
something that is uncommon. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So this is the beginning of what we might call some kind of ministry apprenticeship. So John Mark, we'll refer to him most oftentimes tonight as Mark, but John Mark is, is going to introduce himself into this ministry equation. Now, now, Paul and Barnabas had been instrumental in doing the work of the church, and they're preparing to go out on what will become their first missionary journey. And so these are guys that have been proven. They have demonstrated their giftedness, their abilities. They had done the work of the church. They had been involved in pastoral ministry. And now the church is preparing to send out those that will well represent Jesus Christ and in particular the church that is thrusting them out. Again, these aren't guys that have just like succumbed to some emotional appeal. They're burdened for the advancement of the gospel and they're going to do so through this missionary journey. John Mark. John Mark is about to participate in something that, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are before us that we don't fully understand the gravity of what we're about to do. We have some excitement about it, anticipation, but to fully comprehend what it is that's before us, this was something that he was not fully aware of what it is that's about to unfold. And um, he's not unknown, of course, he's not unknown to Paul. He's well known to Barnabas. Um, he's a cousin to Barnabas, this is family. In fact, when Paul and Barnabas would have been in Jerusalem, it's likely that they would have stayed with John Mark, his mother, the family. So th this is a dynamic that, that is not just thrust upon them with no previous history, no previous understanding. And we can imagine that Barnabas is telling stories about the working of God that they've seen God do through their ministry, through their life. Paul is excited about what's before them. And John Mark is about to embark on something that he's desirous to engage in, but not fully aware of all that God has in store. So Paul and Barnabas about to begin. The Bible says, again, Acts chapter 13, verse number five. Acts 13, verse number five. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had also John to their minister. Well, this is the capital of Cyprus is where they're specifically located right now. And John is there and he's doing the work of the ministry. But it's not, I suspect, as glamorous as John Mark anticipated it may have been. He probably had, at least in his mind, like, man, I, I can't wait to get to do the work of the ministry. Okay, this is just hearkening back a lot of years for me, but I do remember when I was, was brand new in the work of the ministry. I was a youth pastor and, and brand new in it and was anticipating all that that meant. And I can remember that the pastor who was my pastor, Jim Shetler, Pastor Shetler, was having a fellowship at his house and he contacted, called me in my office and he said, hey, Jeff, I need you to do something. We're having a special fellowship at my house. And I'm thinking, hey, this is gonna be wonderful. He's probably asking me to bring a devotional. And, um, 
And uh, hey, I need you to do something for me. And so I'm anticipating, like I'm brand new in ministry and, and um, I'm the youth pastor. And he said, yeah, I need, you to, I need you to do something for me. Well, if you need me to share something with the people, do whatever, I'm, I'm already saying absolutely whatever you need me to do. He says, yeah, I need you to bring, and I'm thinking devotional. And, I said, and he said, I need you to bring some chairs over for the evening. And just pile them up in your vehicle and bring the chairs over. And I'm telling you, I can remember this little catch in my gut. Like, like did he just ask me to bring the chairs over for the fellowship? Like, I'm, I'm the youth pastor. Aren't there other people who can do that? And the, the honest truth is, there were probably a lot of people that could do that. But I'm the person that was supposed to do that. And I can remember learning early on, Paul refers to, in his pastoral epistles, he refers to the work of the ministry. And it's a good expression. Let's ask it this way. When you are treated like a servant, what does that reveal about our willingness to serve? When you're treated like a servant, See, many times we say, hey, listen, I'm ready and I am willing to serve. But when we're treated like a servant, what does that reveal about our willingness to serve? And so the word even that's used here in the Acts 13 passage, when they were at Salamis, uh, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John, that's John Mark, to there or as their minister. The word minister that we oftentimes see in scripture or the word more specifically servant that we see is diakonos, diakonos. That's the word that we get deacon from. And it's both an office and it's an action. So many times it's not referring to an office. It's just saying, hey, the, the servants there, the diakonos, those people that just went out and did the work. That's oftentimes a word that we see for servant. There's even other words that are used for minister that we'd say, oh, that's a good word. But when you get to this word used of John Mark and they had John to their minister, this is the word that in the Greek would be, some would say it's a nautical term, that it has to do with marine activity. And that's because the word literally carries the idea of an under rower or you know, literally a person that rows the boat. This would be like a galley slave. So if you want to talk about a low term for a minister, then you're, you're talking about a, a really simple term about the guy who rows the boat. And when they had John Mark as their minister, as their servant, as the guy that like, man, he just carries the bags. We, we don't know fully, but we do understand that there were some things that were clearly weighing on John Mark. When you read about him here, he's, he's almost mentioned as, I don't know, like a footnote. We hear about Paul and Barnabas, but we never hear about Paul and Barnabas and Mark. So Mark is just like the, the, the add-on. He's the guy that when they're having conversation with, with some of the more important Jews at the synagogue, um, um, hello, uh, Barnabas, yes, we've heard of you. And, and this is Paul. Yeah, he's the, he's the guy that was Saul. Yes, yes. And, and John Mark standing in the background, maybe never included or brought into the conversation. So again, we don't know all that weighs on John Mark, but he is the footnote that is certainly not highlighted. 
John Phillips was a commentator, and he told of a time when he was serving in the British Army, and he was in Pakistan. And while he was there, he sensed that, um, like, wow, I could come back here and be a missionary to the Jews. And that would be, that would be like, so exciting to come back to the, the land of Israel, to be in Palestine and, and serve as a missionary. To, and he got, you know, kind of excited about the possibility. There was actually a church there in Palestine, and he started to share. He's in the military. He starts to share with the church, like, I think God might be calling me to come back here to serve as a missionary. The church now engages in official prayer for him regarding his return to the, the land of Palestine to serve in missions. He's still, at this time, in the military. And he wrote, there was a wise, godly, elderly man in the church by the name of Engelhart, and this is what he said. He said, son, there are two kinds of missionaries. There are sent ones and there are went ones. Before you come back here as a missionary, make sure you are one of the sent ones. And, and I wonder if John Mark was one of the, hey, man, why not go? And this sounds exciting and and um, listen, I have a real burden to, to be engaged in the work. But I wonder if at this stage or at this point, he hadn't yet come to the realization that he was really a sent one. And at this point, he was just kind of like, yeah, why, why not? I'm going to go and be involved in the work of the ministry. For whatever it is that God calls us to do, we should be truly convinced, thoroughly convinced that this is the work that God has engaged upon our heart to do. Well, let's go a little bit further. Acts chapter 13, look down at verse number 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Departing from them. I don't want to make too much of this, but that word departing is not used extensively in Scripture. In fact, this word, um, quite pointedly, it's used three times in Scripture. Once here, and then it's used another time when it's talking about a, a demonic possession and the, the challenge of this rending the person. And finally, after, after a miraculous intervention by Jesus, this, this demonic um, um, influence departed rending the person. And it was a really strong use of the expression. And then there's one other time when it's used, and that's in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 23. And it's when there were those who made a profession. There will be many in that day. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Thy name done many wonderful works. And, and then the Lord will respond and say to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So every time this word, only three times, but each time it's used, it's used with some level of severity. And now we have this unfolding of what took place with John Mark. He, he was the one departing. He departed from them. We might ask the question tonight, why did John Mark fail? 
And it appears that he does. In fact, there wouldn't have been such sharp contention between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas if there wasn't some acknowledgement of he failed. Why did John Mark fail? And quite honestly, we can only suppose, but here are some possibilities. Reason number one was a lack of courage. A lack of courage. In Joshua chapter 1, verse number 9, the Bible says, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. A lack of courage. Do you know there are some decisions that are before us that if we don't come to the place where we say, Lord, listen, I am afraid, but I know who's with me. I know what you are asking me to do. He said, be strong, of good courage. Listen, you know the one who has called you to do what you are, what is set before you to do. Come on now, be strong and very courageous. What happened to John Mark? Maybe just a failure of courage. Like, man, I just can't do this. All right, well, if God's called you to something, you can do this. Why does he fail? Maybe a lack of conviction. A lack of conviction. A conviction is simply something that we are convinced of. I'm convinced of this. All right, again, when there's something in front of us, God, is this what you'd have for me to do? On numerous occasions, you've probably had this conversation with people, as have I. And I've had it on many occasions. Okay, I think God is calling me to, and then they fill in the blank. What do you think I should do? Well, my immediate counsel is you need to know that this is what God is asking you to do. It's reasonable for you to say, God, would you confirm your will in front of my life? Would you just confirm it? In other words, be convinced this is the plan. There are few things in front of us that we fully know all of the challenges that lay before. So this is going to be harder than I anticipate. This will probably cost me more than I am fully aware. This is going to be wrought with challenge of which I can never fully understand. So whatever it is that's before me right now, I better be fully convinced. We might say I have a conviction that this is what God has before me. And until we have that, we better pause and say, Lord, I cannot take this step of faith until I know this is what you'd have for me to do. Maybe John Mark just didn't have that conviction. In Acts chapter 18, verse number 28, for he mightily convinced the Jews, this is speaking of Apollos, for he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ, mightily convinced. Wow, they said there's no doubt about this decision that we're making regarding Jesus Christ, convinced. I think one of the things that the Lord uses, and I'm not talking about in a mystical way, to convince you of his plans before you is the word of God. The word of God. I, I think it's reasonable again for you to say, Lord, your word is this, this lamp to my feet, this light to my path. So would you, even through your word, would you just convince me of the plans that you have? So that we can say, you know, when I look back on this decision, and this was a major decision of my life, I can point to, we should be able to say that. 
So I don't know what's in front of you, but wow, you should be convinced that this is what the Lord has before you. Okay, so why does he fail? Maybe a lack of courage, maybe a lack of conviction. Maybe it was simply a lack of commitment, a lack of commitment. The Bible says repeatedly all throughout things like Psalm 37, 5, commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Luke 9, 62, and Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's just saying, listen, come on now, commit to something. We're not asking about a half-hearted, with my whole heart, Lord, heartily, with everything that, Lord, this is what you have for me. I'm gonna give myself wholly to this which is before me. A lack of courage, maybe, lack of conviction, lack of commitment. We, we would wrap this thought up with lack of character. Lack of character. Wow, character is that thing that just keeps me doing the right thing when it is extremely difficult to do so. Maybe when there are no accolades, maybe when no one is looking, but this is the right thing to do. Maybe for him it was just a lack of character. We oftentimes look at this passage and it's a fitting passage when we think about what God's doing in our lives, even through adversity. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, that's various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Worketh patience. Patience, that is the ability to stand. Maybe John Mark just didn't have the, the endurance right now. He hadn't weathered some of those storms that were what our parents used to say. Hey, listen, it's, it's building character. And maybe he just lacked the character necessary to stay by the stuff. Ultimately, we don't really know why. We just know that he failed. And then we might, you know, ask the follow-up question that's best for us. And then that is who here hasn't failed? In some way, in some shape, in some form, all of us do, all of us have. Well, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to head out for their second missionary journey. So look in your Bible right now, Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse number 36. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought that not good to take him with them, who departed from them at Pamphylia and went not with them, here it is again, went not with them to the work. Look at verse number 39. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. Now, this is interesting. If you study the work of, of Paul and of Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas had just done some work of reconciliation at the church in Jerusalem. So they had been involved in merging some warring factions, some parties that were holding to some strong points on this and other strong points on this. And they said, hey, listen, we're one body. They had just been involved in actually doing some of the work of reconciliation. And now we see that they will not be reconciled. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the very thing that we can see in other people it are the very things that are 
difficult to see in ourselves. Like we can see the need for someone else to have this, but wow, when it comes to us personally. And so we see that there is a rift that is about to take place between Paul and Barnabas that is very significant. And we, we can imagine that, that John Mark would have gone to Paul and said, hey, listen, I apologize. Apparently he wants to go. He apologizes. He's, he's like, hey, listen, I know I blew it, but, but I'm ready. I'm prepared. And Paul would have none of it. Let me ask the question, how many of you, by a raise of hands, this is just us here tonight, so how many of you would say, I'm more of a black and white, right and wrong, good, bad, everything is in pretty easy terms for me, I see things quite clearly, it's easy for me to separate this from this, that's how I roll. How many of you, that's you, raise your hand. Okay, lots of you. How many of you would say, I'm a little bit more, hey, there's more to the story, okay, there's more to the story. Like, okay, well, yeah, this happened, but what were some of the circumstances surrounding it? And no, we can't just make that decision without hearing this and without understanding that. And there's always a little bit more to the story. How many of you, that's typically you? Okay, honestly, in this church tonight, we are a church divided, okay? How many of you ever get frustrated with the person who just sees it? yes, no, right, wrong, black, white? How many of you ever get frustrated with that person? Okay, it's not the black and white people, okay? How many of you ever get frustrated with the, the oh, you guys are so mealy-toast, you're just like, yeah, well, maybe this, maybe, how many of you ever get frustrated with them? Again, we are a church divided, okay? Do you know what we have right here? The Apostle Paul, man, does Paul have any problem saying what the issue is? I mean, if he calls out the apostle Peter to his face, which he records, and I told him to his face, Paul, he doesn't have an issue with calling it like it is, with seeing the issue, and I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to write this letter, and I'm going to write a fiery letter, and I'm, he doesn't have any issue with that. Um, who's the guy who said, hey, listen, when the apostle Paul, who at that time was only Saul of Tarsus and wants to join himself to the church, and there's a lot of people who are saying, no, he's an infiltrator. He's going to try to get into the church, figure out what's going on, and he's going to deliver more of the Christians to persecution, which he's already done. There's a lot of people saying, no, 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 we're not having anything to do with that. And then there's a guy named Barnabas who says, hey, listen, there's, there's more to the story. Let's, let's figure out what's happening here. Come on, calm down, guys. Before we, um, you know, before we make a final decision, let's just talk a little bit about what's already happened with this guy named Saul. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm gonna go see him. I'm gonna talk to him and I'm gonna see what's going on. This is a guy that, I mean, you've got two personalities that are together and now those personalities start to collide. So after a lot of consideration... And, and what I'm assuming, on both parts, a lot of prayer, Barnabas determines to take John Mark once again on the missionary journeys. And Paul said, I'm not going to have any of it. So the, the, notice again, what, is, what does this bring about? Again, verse number 39. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder, one from the other. Okay, listen to what one commentary I read said. What happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object? What happens when two good men, two godly men, are equally convinced that quite opposite courses should be taken? In this case, there was a very hot discussion. 
Barnabas presented all the positive reasons for including Mark in the new venture. He was young, he had promise, grace should prevail, he deserved a second chance. Paul presented all the reasons for not including Mark. He was unstable, he might fail again next time at an even more critical point. It was not fair to expose him to the dangers and dangers there would be. These would be beyond his capacity to face. And then the the discussion does get heated. I mean, we, we have the contention was so sharp between them. This communicates things are elevating. And if you walked into the room when they're talking about this, you would have, you would have turned around and walked back out. So then, I mean, maybe, may, this is speculation, of course, but in this contention, can you see Barnabas saying, hey, hey, listen, Saul, uh, excuse me, Paul, who's the one who gave you another chance? Who's the one that brought you into the church? Come on now, listen, I know, I know you're all hot and bothered right now about John Mark, but somebody that you know very well standing in front of you extended some grace to you, my friend. And then you can almost, you know, hear the apostle Paul kind of turn the corners and say, Barnabas, come to think of it, uh, weren't you one of those who dissembled at Antioch? Weren't you one of those that got kind of carried away with the, uh, with the Jews when, when the, the, the Gentiles were worshiping in a way unfit? Didn't you get a little carried away, Barnabas? And now they're bringing up potentially some of their personal past. And the, the division was sharp between them. So how does this resolve itself? Well, it really doesn't, quite honestly. There, there is no apparent resolution other than um, Paul says, listen, I'm not going with John Mark. And Barnabas says, I'm not going without John Mark. So Paul says, fine, um, I, I'm, I know a guy named Silas, and I'm taking Silas. And Barnabas said, fine, I'm, I'm taking with me John Mark. And, and before we completely throw either of these guys under the proverbial bus, I think it's also really encouraging to note that it doesn't seem like there is a trail of wreckage that follows either of these guys. It doesn't appear that wherever they go, they're trying to enlist support for their side of the story. It appears that this was a division between Paul and Barnabas and that that's where it stayed. At least we don't have any indication anywhere that there was any other problem beyond the problem that existed between those two. And you know, one, one of the things that we could learn from how to disagree, because there was clearly a disagreement before them. One of the things that we could learn is, wow, if there's a disagreement, let's leave it where the disagreement um, should be left. And, and it's inevitable, I would submit, that we're never going to have any disagreement. We're, we're going to have some disagreements. We're going to see one thing one way and another another. And by the way, was there only one right answer to this dilemma? 
Is there only one resolution? Well, clearly there's not only one resolution because they went in different directions. And we see how the Lord, you know, blessed and used. Clearly, if, if the only thing we get from the resolution, hey, the Lord worked through the trip with Barnabas and John Mark, it's that John Mark becomes profitable again. That there's clearly, wow, the Lord worked through that. And if we look and start to study, as we can follow through Scripture, this missionary journey with Paul and Silas, wow, we see the working of God there. So, so man, there, there are going to be ways to look at things that we don't always agree on. And sometimes when we don't agree with something, like I don't agree with that decision. Or maybe your boss made a decision. You don't agree with that decision. Listen, maybe it's nothing more than you would have made it this way, he made it that way, and, and that's all there is. But often, don't we try to enlist other people now to our way? Did you know what, um, what our boss said we have to do with? And now we, we're trying to actually get everyone else on, in our side of this argument. And we even approach them with, clearly that was a really foolish decision. Well, you know what he did. Do you know what she said? Do you know what she implemented? Do you know what he's about to make us do? And now we're, we're trying to get, all, does that ever happen in churches? Over things that are not the, like, wow, this is not a right or wrong. This is one way or another way. We're not talking about doctrinal matters. We're not talking about moral issues. Sometimes in churches, we're just talking about, like, okay, this is a way to do it, and that's a way to do it. And some people say, I like this way better. And others say, I like that way better, but wow, man, sometimes because we didn't get our way, we, we go about trying to enlist other people to our way. And I don't see them doing that. They, they seem to have left the argument where it should have been left. Well, um, you know, Barnabas was, was um, he was, uh, he, by the way, Barnabas went by something that was not his given name. His given name you know, was, was not what everybody knew him by. Have you ever learned of somebody's name and like, oh, I didn't even know that that was really their name? You know, the Bible says in Acts chapter four, verse 36, and Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. So, you know, Barnabas isn't his real name. That's, that's the name that he was given by the apostles. And why did they do that? Son of consolation. He's practicing now what is recognized by everybody. He's the guy that is called alongside. It's, this, it's the same root of the Greek word. The, the Holy Spirit we know is the, the parakaleo, the paraclete. What is he? He's the one called along beside. And, and that's the same basic idea of, of where Barnabas gets his name, the guy who's called along beside. I don't know if parents, if my dad did this when I was a kid, and I remember it, and I know it's one of those things that we can, you know, kind of conjure up in our mind. We can see it unfolding before us, but I, I had a little, um, a little red bicycle with, with uh, metal fenders and solid rubber wheels and, and, uh, and training wheels on it. And I think today, the way they teach kids to ride bikes is not with training wheels. I think today, they have these little bikes that they just use as scooters. There's no pedals on them. They just push them with their feet and they learn to balance. But when I was a kid, you had a bike and training wheels on the bike. And then there'd come a day when you'd take the training wheels off the bike. And that day came for me. I was 19. 
and uh, <laughs> I'm probably four years old, and, and I can still remember, I mean, literally, in my mind, I can see my dad get his, his wrench out, take the training wheels off the bike, and it's the day I'm going to learn how to, you know, ride my bike. And, you know, Michigan Avenue, old sidewalk and uneven and all of that. And, and I still remember my dad saying, okay, pedal, pedal. And dad running along beside me, his hand on that back seat, steadying the bike. And, and then he'd take his hand off a little bit and, you know, I'd wobble around and put his hand back on. And as long as I needed him standing along, running alongside, there's dad. And we'd practice that back and forth. And finally the, the, the time came when, when you're, you're riding that bike and you kind of look over and say, dad, I'm doing it. And, and you know, your dad's way back there. Because he'd stay right by your side so long as you needed it. And then he knew when it's time for you to, to ride on your own. And, and really what Barnabas is doing now is he's saying he's not ready to ride on his own. And so Barnabas comes alongside John Mark in ways that are fitting for his giftedness. That was not Paul's gift. But Paul, I don't know that he would have been very successful at that. He'd say, pedal, learn how to ride a bike. Barnabas would say, no, 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 Paul, he needs somebody to, to run alongside him for a little bit. We know that Barnabas invested. We also know that the apostle Peter must have invested in John Mark. We know that Timothy saw something in John Mark. When, when Paul's writing later to Timothy, He's, he's connected. Timothy is there and John Mark's there with Timothy. There's some pretty significant people that were pouring into the life of John Mark. All along the way, people invested in someone who failed. And what's the long-term result? So as we, you know, wrap it up, this is late in Paul's life and this is pure speculation. But wouldn't it have been interesting? I mean, late in Paul's life, the time of his departure is at hand. And wouldn't it be something if someone says, hey, Paul, you need to read this. And they hand him a manuscript. And Paul picks up the manuscript and he starts to read. <laughs> did, uh, did, did Peter write? Who wrote? Did Peter write this? No. This is good. This is very good. Well, it has a, it has a, a, a message to the Greek, the Gentile. There's even hints that would resonate with the Roman. Who wrote this? Keep reading, keep reading. That is, okay. It's good. Who wrote it? It's written by a young man named Mark. John Mark. The one who, of course, wrote the gospel of Mark. And I wonder if Paul, I mean, it, if, if the timing worked that Paul got to see a manuscript of the gospel of Mark. Can you see him when he finishes reading and he, and he sets down the manuscript and he has this little 
wry smile on his face. <laughs> Barnabas, you were right. I didn't know he had it in him. He is profitable again. And, and how does the Apostle Paul conclude his thoughts in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, he's writing to Timothy. He says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Acrisians to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee. For he is profitable to me for the ministry. John Mark is profitable even to the aged Paul. And why? Because somebody didn't banish him to the halls of failure and then obscurity. I don't know if you know someone who has failed. But if stories were told in this room tonight... There would be a lot of stories of those who would say, my story was a story of failure. And someone became for me my Barnabas. And they walked alongside me. And they made me profitable again. We have no biblical evidence for this, but... But ancient history tells us that Barnabas was actually martyred in Cyprus. And guess who was the person that was there with him who actually claimed his body and buries Barnabas? Ancient history tells us it was John Mark. I don't know the story of the lives that are written in this room tonight or those who are watching. But I do know that there is not a life here that isn't marked by some kind of failure. And if you can name a Barnabas in your life, for some of you, that Barnabas was so essentially used to make you profitable again. And by God's grace, maybe he'll bring a Barnabas, excuse me, a John Mark across your path. And you can be their Barnabas and make them once again, profitable for the ministry.